We are still in our resurrection series, so if you want to make your way to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, uh, 1 Corinthians is in the New Testament, right after Romans, right before 2 Corinthians, and we're going to be in verse 29 through 34 this morning. Um, we'll get there in a second, but I remember when I was in high school, uh, my coaches would always warn me and, and all the players that uh, to stay away from the wrong situations, because if we get caught in the wrong situation, we become guilty by association. And I don't know if you've ever gotten in trouble for something someone else has done. Uh, I'm sure you haven't because, you know, people who come to Harvest Hill, we're all angels. And so I don't have even a, a story about myself of getting in trouble, even though I was a preacher's kid. I mean, I was just, I was just an ideal preacher's kid. But my kids kind of missed that. Um, and so I remember the first time um, Ethan got in trouble at school. Um, I was going to pick him up, and where we were at that time, you would go into the school in the hallway, and the teachers would bring the kids down, and you'd pick them up. And, and so as I was waiting for Ethan to come, he was in kindergarten at the time, and as soon as I saw him and we made eye contact, his eyes started to tear up. And I knew something was wrong, and as a father, I wanted to go to him, but I had to wait for him to come to me. And as soon as he got to me, I said, well, what's wrong? What happened? And he, that's when just the the waterworks just started happening and and he started crying and and then he started mumbling what was going on and through the mumbling I was able to make out that he got in trouble today at school he said he got in trouble for talking and he had to write his name on the board and he was so broken hearted about this so I asked him well did you know as a time that you shouldn't have been talking and he, he said yes <laughs> um, and then so I said well why why were you talking then? And he told me one of his friends had asked him a question, and he thought it would be rude if he didn't answer the question. And so when he answered the question, he got caught for talking when he shouldn't have been talking. So it was an innocent mistake. And I only grounded him for a month, but I'm just kidding. I didn't ground him at all. Uh, but he was guilty. He was guilty by association. He was implicated in talking when he shouldn't have been talking. To be implicated in something is an action of being involved in something. And right now, all of us are feeling the implications of the coronavirus. I like some of the posts that have been going out on social media, and one of them I really like and makes me smile every time is, I feel like the kindergarten student who keeps losing recess time because one or two other students won't follow the rules. With the order we've been given this last week and going around the nation to stay at home, uh, we've all felt the implications of being involved in this pandemic that's plaguing our country and our world. It has impacted our life in some way or another. Well, Paul wanted the Corinthian believers to understand what we now know through the coronavirus. Paul wanted the believers in Corinth, and he wanted us to understand the implications of the resurrection. And so that's our focus this morning, is the implications of of the resurrection. We're going to again be in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We'll be picking up in verse 29 here shortly. So, for, so far in this chapter, we've been walking through it for the last several weeks. We've seen the gospel resurrection in verses 1 through 11. We've seen the rhetorical resurrection in verses 12 through 19. Last week, we spent our time in the certainty we could live in because of the resurrection in verses 20 through 28. And so this morning, we turn our attention to the implications of the resurrection. So let's read our passage. And we'll walk through it this morning. Verse 29, the word of the Lord says, Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? 
If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Verse 33, do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God, and I say this to your shame. The first implication of the resurrection that we are to have as believers is we are baptized into the resurrection. We see this in verse 29. It says, Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? This verse 29 is a, is a hard verse at times to understand and can be easily taken out of context. In the initial reading, it sounds like believers in Corinth are being baptized and they're baptizing themselves on behalf of those who have already died. Now, this would be a view that the Church of Jesus of Latter-day Saints has, but is not a view or a doctrine that Protestant Christianity has or has ever had. So did we miss something in not seeing this verse? It does sound like the individuals in Corinth were being baptized on behalf of the dead. I mean, that's the way it is read. Yet we can see in other places in Scripture, this isn't how salvation works. Salvation is a personal confession of faith in the death of Jesus Christ for the sins of the world and His resurrection from the dead to show His sacrifice was accepted by God and we can be forgiven and saved from the eternal punishment of our sins, which is an eternal separation from God in hell. But if this is what Paul is saying, then he would have had to address this unbiblical view within the church. And we can know that because the Holy Spirit has been leading Paul through this letter and in 2 Corinthians to deal with unbiblical views and actions that are going on in the church. But let's just think about this for a second. What would be the implications if we could baptize ourselves on behalf of those who have already died? There would be no reason to share the gospel. We would just make a list of people that we wanted to be saved, and then when they died, we would go get baptized on their behalf. There would be no reason for Paul to do his mission trips. There would be no reason for those who have placed their faith in Christ to be martyred for their faith or be persecuted. There would be no reason as churches we should send money out or send missionaries to places to spread the gospel. Just think about people that you're praying for and people that you're sharing the gospel with right now. If you could be baptized for their salvation, then you really need to change your prayer. Our prayers need to change if this is what the scripture is actually saying, which it's not. But our prayers should change. Lord, let me just live longer than them and then I'll settle their account by being baptized on their behalf. If this was the practice to which Paul was approving and the Holy Spirit was allowing Paul to approve, then we need to change our funeral services. Every funeral service should have a baptistry ready. That way, if someone died without accepting Christ, we'll just take a volunteer to come be baptized on their behalf. But here's the thing. You and I, we can't settle someone else's account before God. Only Christ can and did do that. So what is being said here in verse 29? Well, like we saw a couple of weeks ago, Paul is led to return back to the rhetorical question. There is no historical evidence to suggest that the Corinthian church was baptizing each other for the sake of their loved ones that have died. There is no his historical evidence that this practice came into existence until much later in history after the New Testament was written. 
So Paul is setting up a platform for, remaining, for the remaining verses that we're going to look at this morning. And here's the platform of the question. Why continue to do any Christian practice, any Christian discipline, or any Christian activity if there is no meaning? Because of the corrupted view of the resurrection of believers, which was held by some within this Corinthian church, the church was giving the act of baptism no significance. To be baptized is our initial confirmation of faith and act of initiation into the body of Christ. This is how Siampa and Rosner define it in their, in their commentary. Notice, baptism is not the means of salvation. Salvation is only found in Jesus Christ, which means this. We could be saved and not baptized. And it means vice versa as well, that I could be baptized but not actually saved. Baptism is a declaration to the body of Christ in the world that we are trusting in the work of Christ for the forgiveness of our sins and the salvation of our soul. We are following Jesus' act by acting out His death when we go into the water and His resurrection when we come out of the water. And so to understand what Paul is led to write here, we should break it apart. So to be baptized means to be immersed in the waters exemplifying Jesus' death and His resurrection. But who are the dead? The dead are those whom Paul has mentioned within the rhetorical verses 19 or 12 through 19 and in verse 20, which he refers to as fallen asleep, meaning the dead here in verse 29 are the righteous, the believers, the children of God. So the statement is what gain or profit or value is there to be baptized on behalf, along with or for the dead, which may not fully clear it up yet, but we're getting there. It isn't that the believers are being baptized into or being baptized for another person to become a believer who has already died. We aren't baptized into a name of someone other than Jesus Christ. You aren't baptized into the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Peter, or the Apostle John. Just like we aren't to pray in the name of Peter, Paul, or Mary. The dead is referring to those who have the dead is referring to those who have died or have been martyred in the faith and were martyred in and for the faith because of the message they preach in the gospel, which is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. A paraphrase of verse 29 would be, if there is no resurrection, why are we getting baptized into the message for those, from those who have fallen asleep or died or be, because of the message that they gave us? Paul might be thinking of individuals like Stephen, who was martyred and stoned at his very feet. He might be thinking of the apostle James, who was beheaded. Another way to understand verse 29 is, if there is no resurrection, what will be accomplished by those who get baptized because of what they heard about how our dead are raised? If the dead are not raised at all, then why are people undergoing a ritual of baptism, which signifies a resurrection on account of them? John Edwards interprets this verse as referring to people who have themselves baptized as converts because they have witnessed the radiant, confident, and courage of the martyrs. Jerome Murphy O'Connor understood in a sense of sharing in Jesus' cup of suffering and death. And when we read the rest of these verses, both of those interpretations make sense within the context of the passage. The implication of our baptism into the death and resurrection of Christ is we are joining Christ and all those who have followed to present the gospel we have accepted to a world, even if that means persecution. We are going to join those who have been martyred and we are going to share in the suffering of Christ. 
After all, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 16, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And we also find Paul going along with this line of thought when he speaks about being in danger and dying every day in verse 32. The implications of being baptized into the resurrection of Christ is we are no longer seeing our life as more valuable than someone else's. We are committing to risk it all for the sake of someone else's salvation. We will be ridiculed. We will be persecuted. We maybe even die for it. But we are not afraid of those things because we belong to the Father because of our faith in Christ's death and resurrection. It means our baptism is not only a confession of our faith, but it is a commitment to Christ's mission. This is the implication of our baptism in the resurrection. And to drive this home, Paul goes on in verse 30 through 32. Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. When Paul came to Christ in the book of Acts, and I encourage you to go read that, Jesus sent a man by the name of Ananias to go and find Paul and to take care of him for a couple days. And because of Paul's former reputation, which he went as Saul before that, Ananias was reluctant. And Jesus told Ananias who Paul was now that he had met Christ. He says, He is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he will suffer for, my, for the sake of my name. And it didn't take long within Paul's conversion that he began suffering. Early in Paul's ministry, he had to be snuck out of the city because the Jews were plotting to kill him. There are numerous times in the books of Acts we can read that he was imprisoned. And in Acts 14 is an interesting story in which Paul was stoned to the point that people thought he was dead. So they drug him out of the city. When Paul came to the very next day, he goes back into the city and he shares the gospel. In, in the latter parts of his ministry in the book of Acts that we have, we see in Jerusalem that the Jewish leaders actually put a hit on Paul. So Paul understood the words that he was led to write here. To say that he was in danger every day was not something Paul was exaggerating about. When he speaks of the beast of Ephesus, he's taking a, a language from the Old Testament book of Daniel in chapter 7, where the wild beasts were used as an analogy to speak of formidable pagan adversaries. So what Paul is saying is, I have taken on dangerous and powerful opponents, risking my life for the gospel. The point of Paul bringing this up is to lead the reader, us and the original Corinthian believers, to ask this question. Why would Paul or anyone go through all of this trouble if the resurrection was not true? And so another implication of the resurrection is to be motivated by the resurrection. Paul put his life in danger. Paul fought for the gospel. Paul died every day, not literally, but he took the words of Jesus Christ seriously about taking up his own cross. And because of what Paul went through and because of the way Paul lived, it gave him the credibility to instruct us through the power of the Holy Spirit in Romans chapter 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, dying every day, holy and acceptable God, which is your spiritual worship. In order to live for the gospel, 
In order to proclaim the resurrection, we must take on the mantra of John the Baptist. He, Jesus, must increase, but I must decrease. The motivation of the resurrection gave Paul his life purpose. And today it is the motivation we need because of the resurrection that it becomes our life purpose. It has changed us and we know it can change others. It's not just for us. Jesus died for the entire world. So we no longer live day by day. We no longer hope that we just get by. We no longer have to wonder about the next thing. We know because of the resurrection, because we belong to Christ, that we have been purposed by God in Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. We have been given example to follow Christ. We now have an incredible eternal mission for the eternal kingdom of God. So we are no longer as God's people to live self-centered or self-reliant because now we are God-centered and Holy Spirit-reliant. We no longer think inwardly and selfishly, but we think outwardly with a giving heart. This is the implication of the resurrection which motivates us. The world should look at us as believers and see the way we live, see how we talk, see how we react to certain situations, see how we conduct ourselves. And they should look in awe and ask us, why do you do what you do? How are you able to do that? And our answer is very simple. It's because Jesus Christ died and rose again. The resurrection motivates us to love in ways the world can't and will not. It motivates us to pray for our enemies and to not to bash people who have different views in life. It motivates us to give our money to higher causes. It motivates us to look out for one another. It motivates our conversations, our actions, our reactions to be different. In other words, the resurrection is the motivation to do what we're commanded in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, to not be conformed to this world but to be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that you, by testing you may discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Well, Paul came to understand this. He understood that if there is no resurrection, if there is no resurrection of believers, if death is the final word, then there is no reason to risk anything. And so that's what he says in verse 32. If there is no resurrection, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. This is a motto for life that has no direction, has no motivation, and has no purpose. It was a lifestyle within the Roman world which the Corinthian church was becoming plagued by. It's taken from the Old Testament book of Isaiah in chapter 22, verse 13. In Isaiah, the situation that's going on, this was the reaction of God's people while they were living in Jerusalem when the city was being sieged by the, by the Assyrians. To the, to the Jewish people in Jerusalem at that time in Isaiah, the world looked bleak. There seemed to be no hope left. And so the people started living as eating and drinking because tomorrow we're going to die. There's no motivation, no direction. And I think a lot of people are experiencing that today. In the book of Isaiah, the people of God believed that total annihilation was at hand. And instead of repenting and turning their hearts to God and seeking after God, what they decided to do, they decided to throw a party like there was no tomorrow. They had lost all hope. They had lost a focus in the God that they served and the God who had spoken his promises over them. Paul is telling the Corinthian believers that they were living in such a way by doubting the power of the resurrection. And when we doubt the power of the resurrection, we are tempted to live in such a way. There's no hope. But look, if Christ can resurrect from the grave, 
And we believe he did. We know he did. That's our faith. That's our trust. Because Christ resurrected from the dead, he can do anything, including taking care of a virus that's going on in the world and seems to have the world on edge. We aren't to live like the world, having no hope and without God in the world. We know, we know this is our Father's world and we are His children. And we are motivated to live by our faith and our trust in God, unlike the people in Isaiah who felt that their resource, who was God, had run dry. Paul is telling the believers and he's telling us, if Christ did not resurrect, then we should live like unbelievers. But because we have placed our hope and our faith and our eternal salvation in the resurrection, we are called to live differently. The resurrection is our motivation to do so. Christ overcame death, and by our faith in Him, we have too. This is going to lead Paul to later write in this own chapter in 1 Corinthians 15. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of the resurrection, death is not the end, but the beginning of eternal glory. Has the resurrection changed us and who we are in this world? If the resurrection hasn't changed us, then we're living as if the resurrection has no meaning. And this was the danger in Corinth. The resurrection had lost its meaning. It had lost its power over some within the church. But we are baptized in the resurrection. We are motivated by the resurrection so we might be evidence for the resurrection. Look in verses 33 and 34. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God and I say this to your shame. Paul's hammering it down right now. He's getting to the issue within the church and an issue that we can allow to develop in our own heart. He says, do not be deceived in verse 33. The word deceived means to be fooled or to be misled. Do not be fooled. Do not be misled. Bad company ruins. That word ruins means corrupts good morals or good character. There were some within the church who, were cor who had a corrupting belief and their corrupting belief was corrupting others in their view of the resurrection. Again, I've said this almost every week in this series. If our view of the resurrection is off, then everything in our life is going to be off. The failure of the believers was not to think rightly. And because they were not thinking rightly, it was calling a failure to not live rightly. So Paul delivers three instructions. Do not be misled. I think many of us have probably watched the news the last several weeks and wondered how accurate is this? Is this really what's going on in the world? Here's the thing. We never have to wonder that about God's word. How do we know if we're being misled? Are we believing anything which does not align with the eternal word of God? Are we believing anything that may even sound biblical, but isn't? There was a time in my ministry we were at a church and we were having a business meeting, and uh, those are always fun uh, to have. Actually, we've had some really good family meetings here, and uh, a lot of laughter. I'd, I'd, I'd go for a family meeting right now just so I could be around some people. 
But I remember in this business meeting, uh, the, the conversation was getting a little heated. And one of the deacons of the church stood up to you know, get everybody's attention. And he made this comment. He says, the church has to have democracy because democracy is the most Christian thing. Now, don't get me wrong. I love democracy, especially when it works. I love the freedoms we have in this country. We're able to do this sort of thing right now through the web. I don't have to fear about anybody coming in and stopping what we're doing. But the word democracy isn't in the Bible. The idea of democracy can be found in certain spots of the Bible. But we as God's people live under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. He has the first and final say in our life, how to, how to live it. His word guides and directs it. We have to trust it. And so we have to test everything, everything through the word of God, through scripture. Do not be misled. Do not be fooled. Just because something sounds good doesn't mean it's godly or biblical. The second instruction is wake up from your drunken stupor. It's a phrase meaning come to your senses. I don't know how many times we may have said that. Hey, just snap out of it. Come to your senses. In the Greek, this command of waking up from your drunken stupor is a command of urgency. What Paul is laying out for us is it means at all costs we must align our hearts to the heart of God. The third command is do not go on sinning. This command follows the command of urgency, but in the Greek, do not go on sinning is to be a continuous action because sin is going to be a continuous battle we are going to face every single day. The Word of God is calling us to action like James would be led to write in James chapter 4. Submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. James and Paul were both led to instruct the believers to understand the severity of sin and then choosing still to live in that sin. Sin is why Christ died. Sin is why we accepted Christ's resurrection so we could be forgiven for our sins before a holy God. And now we are the evidence of Christ's resurrection. I know there's a lot going on in the world. I know there's a lot that's going through our mind and sometimes we can be worried. And during a time where many of us are homebound or are staying at home, I want to encourage you and during this time to use this additional time that you have with your family to focus on God's love for you demonstrated through the resurrection. Then when the day comes and we can all come back out in public spaces, as we're spending our time focusing on God's resurrection and falling deeper in love with God and the meaning that is to have in our life and the implications it's to have as we live out our life, we will allow people who need the hope that we have and we live in in this very moment to see a difference in us like never before. Let's use this time to fall more in love with the God who loves us. This world needs a message of hope and we have it as God's people. It's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You may be listening here and you need that hope yourself. The Bible says that we are all sinners before a holy God and our sin separates us from God for eternity. And there's nothing we can do to remove that sin. There's nothing anyone else can do to remove that sin from us. Only Jesus Christ can do that. 
by His death and His resurrection. And the Bible says, when I believed God loved me that much, that He sent Jesus Christ to die for my sins and rise again, that I could be forgiven by placing my faith and trust in that and be given eternal salvation, I will be saved. That may be something you need to accept personally yourself, to accept Jesus Christ's death and resurrection for the forgiveness of your sins and your eternal security and salvation. If so, I would encourage you to reach out. But right now, I'd like to lead you into prayer if that's something that the Holy Spirit is putting upon your heart. So if that's you, would you pray these words? Father, forgive me, for I have sinned. Father, I believe your Son, Jesus, died for my sins and rose again, that I could be forgiven. And I confess it with my, with my mouth, because I believe it in my heart, that He is alive. Thank you, Lord, for saving me. If you prayed that prayer, would you reach out to me? My name is Mike Hurchin. You can send me an instant message. You can email me at pastormike at harvesthill.org. Love to celebrate with you. Love, love to encourage you and give you some tools to continue growing your faith, even though we may not be together physically. But brothers and sisters of Christ, we have an incredible message to give to this world that is hurting right now, and that's the resurrection. But it has to change us first before it will be able to change others in our life. It has to have a power in our life and a meaning. So let's spend this time just seeking after God, drawing near to Him, thirsting for Him. So when we get back together, and we'll get back together at some point in time, it's just going to be a beautiful worship service because we've all been growing in our faith through this medium and through other mediums. So I'm going to continue to pray for you, continue to lift you up, appreciate your prayers for, for me and my family.